Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. When I started writing this sermon, I had a plan. My plan was to offer condolences to all the Nationals fans that go to Collective because I didn't think they had a chance of winning the World Series, but they did it. So if you're a Nats fan, congratulations. Uh, For all of you who made the decision in 2005 to betray the Orioles and jump off that bandwagon and jump onto the Nationals, congratulations. For all of you who just recently jumped on the bandwagon and know nothing about baseball, I have no words for you as a long-suffering Orioles fan. It's just not fair, okay? All right. Now, if you followed the Nationals and the World Series at all, you probably heard there was some drama during game six. And I'm not talking about umpires. I'm talking about Alex Bregman and his home run trot. On Tuesday night, Astros third baseman Alex Bregman hit a home run in the first inning of the game. And as he trotted to first base, instead of dropping his bat like he's supposed to, he carried it with him to kind of show up the pitcher, right, to taunt him. Later on in the game, Juan Soto hit a home run and carried it as well. And the baseball world started to lose its collective mind because of the unwritten rules of baseball, one of which is you don't show up the pitcher after you hit a home run, right? You don't stare at it. You don't watch it. You don't throw your bat in the air. You just run around the bases like you've been there before. But Bregman carried the bat with him. He taunted the pitcher, And baseball has a ton of unwritten rules. You don't walk across the pitcher's mound when heading to your dugout. You don't bunt in order to break up a no-hitter. You don't steal a base when you have a considerable lead, but in baseball, like, what is a considerable lead? And if you get hit, you don't rub it. Now, just like baseball, life has unwritten rules. You don't swipe left or right on someone else's phone when they show you a picture. You don't want to do that. You don't play music through your phone speakers in a public space. And I'm going to repeat that again for some of you. You don't play music through your phone speakers in a public space. You don't take the last piece of gum from someone else's pack. Men, you always leave an empty urinal between you and the next guy unless the bathroom (laughs) is full. Now, even the church has unwritten rules. Rules that maybe our grandparents grew up with and then passed down to us. Rules that many of us honestly have been stung by and may have left us feeling burnt by the church or Christians. Rules that create barriers that make it hard for us to experience the freedom and the life that Jesus truly has to offer. And so many of us in this room could go through story after story how these types of rules have pushed us away from God and his church. The same is true for our friends and family or people in our community. I think the most famous one is that you have to wear your Sunday best to church. Clearly, I don't like that rule. You know, it's funny though, I think the number one question that I'm asked as a pastor isn't doctrine or theology questions, it's why do I wear t-shirts all the time? And I love that question. The simple answer is I wear a t-shirt every Sunday because I want to and it's comfortable. This is what I wear on a daily basis, so it feels weird to dress differently than when I'm preaching than who I am Monday through Saturday. I also want people to know that this is a church that has a lot of tattoos. And so if you show up at Collective and you're like, I don't know about tattoos, this isn't going to be your church. There's way too many of them. Our goal is to be the most tattooed church in Frederick. I think we're there. Yeah, that's that's good. But here's the full reason why I wear a t-shirt when I preach. 
when I was in high school, I went to a church, uh, a really good church in Chantilly, Virginia. And most of the people who went to that church would show up in business attire, which made sense because of where it was located. And because most of the church dressed that way, so did the pastors. When we first started going there on most Sundays, they would wear slacks and a button up and a tie or slacks and some sort of like sweater combo thing. They looked like pastors. And the truth is like, there was nothing really wrong with that. But when the church was just a few years old, I remember vividly that there was this woman who would come every few weeks. She was in her late thirties. She didn't have kids. She would always show up and take the last seat in the last row on the right-hand side. But while she was there, she would sing, she would worship. She would take notes. She kind of radiated joy. She always seemed so happy. But then she wouldn't come back for a few weeks. Eventually, one of the pastors asked her why, didn't they, why they didn't see her more. He said, I know you love it here. I see you worshiping. You're taking notes. You're always happy to be here, but then you disappear for a few weeks. Is there something going on? Is this something that we as a church can help with? The woman was embarrassed and went on to explain that she loved the church she loved the worship and the preaching. She felt welcomed and like she belonged. But the reason she only went once a month was because she only had one nice dress to wear and she didn't want people to know that she was poor and didn't have nice clothing. So she only came once a month when it was clean. And my pastor went back and shared that story with the rest of his staff. From that day forward, they began to wear jeans and t-shirts. Essentially, they just wore what they were comfortable wearing because they didn't want people to think that you have to have a Sunday best, whatever that is, in order to be a part of that church. And when I was in high school, I heard that story. And ever since then, whenever I preach, I wear jeans and a t-shirt. I want people to know that you can be you and belong here, that your value doesn't come from what you wear, even though society says it does. Your value comes from God and he loves you. And there are other unwritten rules in church. Some of you have been told that you can't ask questions. Right, that somehow that's disrespectful to do so. This is one of the reasons why our small groups are actually set up the way they are. Our MCs every single week will come up here and say, it's a safe place to ask questions because following Jesus should not be a mindless endeavor. Another unwritten rule is that everyone has to think the exact same way or else we can't do church together. Now, to be honest, in the history of church and church history, this is why denominations were started. Christians couldn't figure out how to worship together while disagreeing about the non-essentials of church. So they started their own types of church, their own denominations, and told other people, you don't belong here. You don't belong here because you use instruments during worship. You don't belong here because you take communion every week or because of the way that you take communion. You don't belong here because your view on spiritual gifts. Now, newsflash, we're not going to agree on everything, and that's okay. I'm going to teach some things that you don't like, the Bible says some things that you're going to disagree with. You have to work through that. Your relationship with Jesus is your relationship with Jesus. Your salvation is your salvation. You have to own your own growth. We go to church together, but that doesn't mean we have to all think the same way about everything. I mean, for goodness sakes, we can't even agree on what's better, pumpkin spice or apple cider. And we know it's not apple cider, that's trash. <laughs> Right? It's pumpkin spice. We all agree. That's good. But just because some of you are crazy and think apple cider is better doesn't mean that we can't do church together. Right? We can disagree and still be a community together. We can still worship together. We can still grow together. Probably the most hurtful unwritten church rule that exists that many of you have heard before is that you have to have your crap together before you show up. 
That the church is only for people who have removed the sin from their life or at least pretend that they've removed it from their life. That the church is only for people who have their life figured out. That the church is only for people who are fixed. In other words, leave your mess at the door. And I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the line, the church went from being a place where lost and broken people can find grace to a place where we pretend that everything's okay. We get shamed because of the sin that's in our life. And then we tell everyone we're doing fine when we're secretly dying inside. And some of you have experienced that before. Because of that, you walked away from church. You walked away from God, if you ever made it inside in the first place. In the book, Irresistible, Andy Andy Stanley shares a story about a trip that he took to China. And while he was there, he met a young woman who had recently begun to follow Jesus. And because there are no churches in her city, she would actually pay for a very expensive bus ticket. And she'd ride two hours one way just to go to church. And in their conversation, at one point, this young woman asked Andy, why doesn't everyone in America go to church? And Andy writes that he was frozen because he didn't know how to explain thousands of empty churches to a young lady who would ride two hours in a bus to go to a church in another town. Why doesn't everybody in America go to church? And what she's really asking is why is the church so resistible? Because Jesus wasn't resistible. Everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd of people following. People changed their entire lives, gave up everything they had just to be in his company. And we also know that the church in the beginning wasn't resistible. We read about how the church first began in the book of Acts and it's inspiring. It's a movement that couldn't be slowed down. This is how the author Luke describes the first church. He writes, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, which is communion, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So once upon a time, members of the original church, which was actually called The Way, they turned the world upside down. They lived in authentic community. They took care of one another. No one was too broken, too far from God, too sinful. And Luke writes again and again and again in the book of Acts that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early church was so irresistible that people couldn't help and want to be a part of it. British author Karen Armstrong sums it up this way. She writes, against all odds, by the third century, Christianity had become a force to be reckoned with. We still do not really understand how this came about. And historically speaking, she's she's correct. It's historically impossible to explain the growth of the early church. Anthropologists and historians and even skeptics with an agenda have reached the same conclusion. Something happened in the first century that resulted in Christianity spreading like wildfire. So what happened? Why is the church so resistible today? Why are people walking away in droves? Why is it that every new generation is labeled as the least churched generation? I think it's because the church lacks grace. You see, the early church had the unique advantage of actually seeing Jesus perform miracles. The early church got to see him resurrect from the dead, proving that the promises of new life were real. They experienced his grace firsthand, and it was so life-giving that they felt like they needed to share it with everyone. 
But over time, the church has become less about grace and more about unwritten rules, more about what we wear, more about tradition, more about the things that didn't actually matter in the beginning. See, Jesus said that he came for the sick, not the healthy. He came for those who were lost. He came for the broken. So that means the church was started for messed up people by messed up people. But for some reason we have felt or been told or experienced church where it's not okay to not be okay. One of the best examples of this in the Bible is in John 8. This is what John writes. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd student gathered and he sat down and taught them. Like we said before, if Jesus was there, there was a crowd. If there was a crowd there, he was teaching. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now, there are so many questions that you could have from those two sentences. How did they catch her in the act of adultery? Was it a setup? Were they watching her? Which is just kind of creepy. Where's the dude, right? All these questions come up, but we don't actually get answers for them. But we do see how Jesus responds. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So the truth is they really didn't care about her sin. They just cared about their own agenda, which was trying to prove that Jesus wasn't the son of God. But Jesus doesn't bite. He doesn't take the bait. And in fact, he leans down and begins to write something in the dust on the ground. And we don't know what Jesus wrote. A lot of people believe, and maybe you've heard this in a sermon before, that he was writing down the sins of the Pharisees. Right? A lot of people will say that they believe he was writing down a Bible verse. About five years ago, I was guest preaching on this story at a church and I joked that I thought Jesus was writing, check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> and I'm not even kidding you. Two years later, I was back in that church and I was guest preaching and a woman made a beeline straight for me. And she got in my face and she goes, check yourself before you wreck yourself. And I thought, I'm gonna have to fight this woman in church. <laughs> And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't get it. And she's like, two years ago, you said this. I wrote it on a post-it note. It's been on my computer ever since, which was not my intention at all, but whatever works. So check yourself before you wreck yourself. And they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So here's the first thing we learned from that story today. We all have brokenness in our lives. We've messed up. We've been selfish. We've hurt people. We've given in to temptation. The truth is we are broken and sinful people. We walk outside of what God wants for our lives and that's a reality. There are no perfect people in this room right now. And if by chance you do think you are perfect, you're definitely in the wrong church because this is just a giant mess of people. That's collective. But this is how Jesus responds to our sin. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust, check yourself before you wreck yourself. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Here's the second thing that we learn. Jesus offers grace. Jesus asks her, where, where are these people? Like the people that brought you in front of you, where, where do they go? Do they still condemn you? And she looks around, she realizes the answer is no. And Jesus' response to that isn't cool, good for you. It's, hey, neither do I. Jesus offers a woman grace. Now he tells her to stop sinning. 
He doesn't give her permission to continue to live her life outside of what God wants for her. But he doesn't tell her to go home, get your crap together, then come back later so that you can be forgiven. Right? He says, I love you. I forgive you. You belong here. Now go and change the way you're living. And this is what the church should look like. It is not be perfect and experience the freedom that Jesus offers. It is, you are not perfect, but Jesus offers you freedom anyways. And when the church lives this out, it can become the most beautiful entity in the world. When a church is full of grace, it's irresistible. That's why we're doing this campaign. We want to redeem the way that people see the church. We want our city to experience the grace that Jesus offers. We want people to think that church, not just collective, but church in general is irresistible. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite authors says this, the world can do everything better than the church except offer grace. Grace is the one thing the church has that the world doesn't. The world thirsts for grace and the church should not create barriers. But the truth is one of the barriers that we feel like we are up against as a church is that we're running out of room. We don't have enough seats or parking or kids space or even lobby space for new people to fully experience the grace that God is trying to offer them through this community. That's why we're doing the Frederick that God sees. Now, if you weren't at Collective last week, I wanna bring you up to speed. We're looking to move into our own 24 seven space by the end of 2020 to find that we're asking those who call Collective home, right? Not new people, those of you who say Collective is your church home to give above the normal giving for the next 11 months so we can reach our goal of raising $250,000. And we're gonna ask you to give a commitment on November 17th of what you will give. And actually next week when you come here, there'll be a commitment card on your seat when you walk in. And we're just asking you to take it home to pray. And the goal of this campaign isn't to get into a fancy building. The goal isn't to stop being portable. The goal isn't to feel like we've made it. The goal is to reach people who are far from God. And what that means is we want to let as many people know that grace is available. We want to let as many people know that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And this is regardless of what you've done in your past. It's regardless of what you'll do in your future. God's love for you will not change. And so collective, our goal is to live this out by doing this campaign and creating more space where lost and broken people can find grace. And our hope is that we can continue to be a church that brings life to people. Another thing I mentioned last week was that we're gonna share stories in this series. And so I want you guys to check out Luke and Javeria's story about their journey to finding this church. Church for me when I was growing up was you go Sunday morning, go home and nap in the afternoon, and then go back Sunday night. And that was it. We never did really anything out in the community. I grew up as a missionary kid, and we were taught by my parents, unfortunately, that if they ran into an issue at a church, something that they didn't agree with or they didn't believe in, instead of working through the situation, working through the problem, they would just get up and go. It kind of gave me a neutral view of church. I really wasn't sure ex exactly what to expect. I was just very unsure of what I was going to walk into. I actually did not grow up in church. We went on holidays here and there, but then I went to a boarding school when I was 14 and that's where I put my faith in Jesus. And from then on, I was exposed to only very fundamental churches that were not 
necessarily grace-based, but still, you know, very strong on the law end of it. I knew that they weren't showing Jesus, but at the same time, it was hard to like pull yourself out of that being in it for so long. We met at college, but it was associated with a church. It was very strict. Didn't give you any opportunity to figure out what a personal relationship with Christ could be like for you as an individual. I feel like they just tried to play, you know, God in your life. Her first experience with the church and then my upbringing and having that tacked onto all the negative experiences, it didn't give us a really good baseline of what a church should look like. I ended up moving to Maryland for a job. The church that we were going to definitely touted grace and truth. Um, unfortunately, it was more practicing law and playing God. The trust that we had built up over the years was instantly broken because of our decision to find a church that was a better fit for our family. We had just had the twins, Olivia was two. Luke was switching jobs, so it was like a time when we needed that so much. I think it was just like Luke and I, we were just like, okay, we just have to get through this, it's, you know, it's just us. I was just like, you know, I'm just tired of like putting ourselves out there. I almost blamed God during that time because it was so difficult. If I couldn't trust these people that God had put in my life, how could I trust God? We ended up going with a friend to a church called Mosaic. And we actually really liked Mosaic, but it was the drive. Jude was young, the drive was long. It, it wasn't conducive to us actually being part of the community. One of the Sundays that we actually did go to Mosaic, that's the Sunday that Michael and Ray were there um, introducing Collective. They hadn't launched yet. I think they were still in the pre-launch phase. They kept saying that we're community, and so it kind of, you know, made my ears perk up a little bit. And Luke was like, hey, I'm going to talk, go talk to them in the lobby. And I said, okay, I'll be in the car. Like, I <laughs> wanted nothing to do with it. I just mentally wasn't ready for that. We ended up going the very first launch day. I immediately felt like I had been there for a while. And I'm not sure if that really makes sense, but I felt at home right away. And this guy that I had met once for 10 minutes at the church that we were going to looked up in the lobby as I was walking through, put his hands up in there, he said, hey, Luke. I couldn't remember, I, I couldn't believe that he actually remembered my name. Uh, just that small gesture, you know, spoke volumes to me. Uh, it spoke to me of his character and then also his leadership and it kind of gave me good insight as to um, where this church could ultimately end up. I did not go to the <laughs> service the day that Luke went. He took the girls, but I remember he called me on the way home and said another huge thing was that the kids loved Collective Kids. and. We, we together always said like that was our big thing, like we wanted our kids to be in a church where they felt welcomed and they were learning and they were growing in their faith, it wasn't just about us. All three girls simultaneously said, can we go back next week? So that was kind of it at that point for us. In the two years, I guess, we've been here, we've created some deep friendships that, I mean, if there was no other reason, just that has been huge in our life. Yeah. We have seen friendship in a whole different view in the relationships that we've developed at this church. It's been pretty awesome. Slowly, uh, Collective has, you know, brought me around and I feel like there's still times I feel like, oh, I need to pull back, but the friendships we've made, you know, help, help me gain that trust even though it's a slow process. The way that we feel redeemed through Collective is how I could have conversations with people about being burned by the church, being burned by relationships within the church. My relationship with God has strengthened exponentially, and I feel that that's a direct correlation between 
my relationships with the, the folks here. I know we always tell our kids, some people you won't ever be able to tell them about Jesus per se because they may, may not be there yet, but you can always show people Jesus and I feel like that's what Collective has done for us. We've had quite a few friends come consistently and find hope just like we have at Collective. I don't think that we would be where we are without Collective right now. church becomes irresistible when it's the expression of God's grace. And grace is, yeah, you did a bunch of bad stuff, but Jesus did a very good thing for you. Grace is, you don't have to have anything because Jesus has done everything. Grace is, you are not enough but on your own, but Jesus is enough. And you may be here because you want your marriage fixed or your finances fixed or a million other things, and that's fine. We want to help you with those. But the real reason we believe you're here is grace. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. This means it doesn't matter if you change the bad things in your life. Now, some Christians will want me to add, but you should change. Now, if you have bad stuff in your life, we hope you change. But Jesus' love for you is completely unrelated to that. One pastor says it like this, grace is so offensive that if you're not offended by it, you probably don't understand it. So when you give your life to Jesus, when you express, express faith by repenting and being baptized, he forgives you. He forgives everything you've done and everything you will do. There's no need to live in fear. This is why you can be real and you don't have to put up a front anymore. And some Christians will argue about this. They'll say that this statement isn't true, but if you're ever in a church or around a Christian that tries to tell you that you have to earn God's love, run. Because you don't have to do anything to earn God's love. I was actually thinking about this in regard to the campaign. Do you know what happens to you if you don't give a penny to this church ever? Do you know what happens to God's love for you? Nothing. It doesn't change. It's completely unrelated to that. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. So God looked at you while you were doing the worst thing you would ever do, and he said, I'm going to die for you. I'm going to die for that. And so when Jesus is hanging on a cross, his last words are, it is finished. And what does that mean? It means grace is finished. It's here. It's complete. It's for every single person that wants to say yes to it. Grace is Christianity's best gift to the world. Grace is life-changing and life-giving. Grace doesn't make demands. It just gives. Grace is recklessly generous. It doesn't use sticks, carrots, or time cards. It doesn't keep score. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace is unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. It's one-way love. Jesus came to liberate us from the weight of having to make it on our own, from the demand to measure up. He came to emancipate us from the burden to get it all right, from the obligation to fix ourselves, find ourselves, and free ourselves. Jesus came to release us from the slavish need to be right, rewarded, regarded, and respected. And because Jesus came to set the captives free, life does not have to be a tireless effort to establish ourselves, justify ourselves, and validate ourselves. Because there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And that is grace. And that is the type of church we want to be. Because that is the type of church we want. That is the type of church that Luke and Javeria and their family longed for. That is the type of church that I need.
And so that is the type of church we want people to experience. And, and this means that this place is gonna be jacked up. If we truly believe that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less and we believe that God wants to set you free so you can become the person you were created to be, we're gonna have a mess on our hands. And here's why, because people are gonna be real. People are gonna drag stuff out that's never been in the light before. People are gonna confess things that have stayed hidden for a very long time. People are going to express frustrations they have never felt free to express and that's okay. The church has been called a hospital for sinners well, guess who shows up in hospitals? Sick people. We say we're a church for broken people. Guess who shows up at a church for broken people? Broken people. And that's why we're here. When you're a church about grace, it means you're gonna attract messed up people. That's why you are here and that's why I am here because here we can get grace. Today, we're gonna close uh, this service and we close first service as well by celebrating people putting their faith in Jesus and getting baptized. At first service, we celebrated Steve. Steve's in recovery. Uh, Steve's just fighting for every aspect of his life. But the one thing that Steve knows is that he doesn't have to fight for the love of God. He didn't have to fight for grace. He just had to say yes. In just a few moments, we're gonna baptize Robin. And we do it in this trough, and it's very hard to miss. When you walk in, whether it's your first time you've been here a bunch, you notice that it's there, like something's happening today. But I don't know if you've ever noticed that on the right-hand side of the trough, there are signatures of every single person who's been baptized at Collective. And the names include students and adults, men and women, young and old. There are family and friends, but it also includes people who are in recovery, people who are currently addicted but fighting, people who are divorced, people who struggle with self-worth, people who have been abused, people who've been to jail, people whose community was previously found in a gang, there are doubters and skeptics, people who walked away from church, people where Collective was the first church they ever went to, and people who've been following Jesus for a very long time but were too afraid to get baptized previously. It's full of names of people whose society has pushed aside. And none of these names would be on this trough if the rule was that they had to get their crap together before they could show up, before they could submit their life to Jesus, before they could experience his grace. And this is what makes the church irresistible. It's not the names, but what, they, what the names represent. Second chances, new life, hope, and grace. And if we continue to be that church and create more space for broken people, one day this trough will no longer be gray, but black from the ink of the lives that have been transformed through Jesus in this church. And I know for me personally, I cannot wait for that day. Let's pray. God, grace is something that um, we just don't understand um, because we don't really experience in the world. We don't experience it in our relationships, in our careers. Um, God, to be honest, we don't even offer our own selves grace. But for some reason, you tell us that there's nothing we could do to make you love us more. There's nothing we could do to make you love us less. And God, even though we wrestle with that, we want that. God, we're broken. We're messed up, we're outcasts. We have sin in our life that we've been fighting for a long time. We have sin in our life that we don't even wanna talk about. But God, it doesn't matter where we are in our faith, in our walk with you, whether we walked away from church, whether we're here for the first time. God, all you want is to have a relationship with us, to offer us grace, to show us that you love us unconditionally. It's better than anything else that we can get in this world.
So God, we thank you for grace. God, I just pray that we can be a church that pours it out on this city. God, that is done in such a way that it's offensive and it doesn't make sense, but we know it comes from you. God, we thank you and love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.